So there's that old uh, Sunday school story about the day when uh, the lesson was about Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Uh, and when the lesson was over, the teachers uh, asked the kids, well, you know, what did you learn from that? And uh, one of them sheepishly uh, raised her hand and said, um, if you want to have a good party, make sure Jesus is there. <laughs> you, know? you know, which frankly is not a bad moral to the story. And, uh, you know, it does call to mind uh, that little prayer that a lot of Lutherans learned as kids uh, and is said to this very day at parties and dinners and begins with the words, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. On the other hand, uh, today's passage that you just heard from the Gospel of John does raise the question about exactly why it is that the first of Jesus' miracles or signs, as uh, John likes to call them, uh, has to do, of all things, with keeping the wine flowing at a wedding reception where nobody was dying, nobody was lame or blind, uh, there was no demon possession, uh, there were no injuries, nobody was sick, unless they were sick from the wine that had already given out uh, as the party uh, went on. And uh, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, is this really worth a miracle, not to mention the very first of all of his miracles. In fact, uh, there are some biblical historians and theologians who actually refer to the miracle at Cana as, quote unquote, a minor miracle, whatever that is. Others uh, conclude that the primary message of this passage has to do with uh, Jesus' uh, blessing and uh, respect for the covenant of marriage. Uh, others conclude that what it really says to us is that uh, we have kind of a cool Messiah who is willing to hang out with regular people and eat and drink and celebrate with them. Uh, a few uh, zoom down into another lesson, that being that you should always listen to your mother. Uh, no matter who you are, uh, given the fact that uh, this miracle may not have even taken place were it not for Mary's uh, prompting, and then a few more uh, point to her words to the servants at the wedding when she says to them, do whatever he tells you, because when you do, uh, this world and your life uh, become much better places and you get to see the work and the power of God uh, up close and personal. And while I think there's really truth in all of those things uh, to one extent or another, uh, there are some other things going on at this wedding reception uh, that uh, I believe are worth taking notice to and help us to understand what this passage is really all about and why it is everything but a minor miracle. And it begins with the fact uh, that even apart from the miracle, uh, a first century Jewish wedding was a very, very big deal. In fact, so big that they would typically last for several days instead of just hours like they do in our culture and uh, society. And I mean, I don't know how many times you can dance to you make me want to shout in the course of five or seven days, but, uh, but they went on for an entire week at a time uh, or almost that long. And people came, uh, as they do today, from places near and far, as evidenced by the fact that Mary, the mother of Jesus, came from Nazareth, which was just about uh, eight or 10 miles away from uh, Cana. 
Uh, but Jesus also was invited to the wedding, and he came all the way from Bethsaida, which was on the other side of the lake or the Sea of Galilee, uh, in order to be a guest at the wedding as well. In fact, uh, you may have noticed at the very beginning of the passage that John says that this took place on the third day, uh, which a lot of people understand to be the third day after Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel to follow him at Bethsaida, you know, many miles uh, away. Uh, and Nathaniel, by the way, uh, just as an aside, was uh, the one who hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he responds by saying, Nazareth, can anybody good come from Nazareth? Well, guess where Nathaniel was from? He was from Cana. So, you know, there might have been like a little Cana-Nazareth thing going on there, a little rivalry that we don't know about. Uh, but at, at any rate, uh, it would have probably taken them about two days to get from Bethsaida over to Cana, and then the wedding happened on the third day. Well, then some other people believe that the third day is actually a reference to the third day of the week, in other words, to Tuesday. And the reason for that is that in the book of Genesis, in the story of creation, Tuesday is the first day when God says something is good, not once, but twice. And so Tuesday, the day of the double blessing, one for the bride, one for the groom, was then a good day to get married. But I digress. The point is that for these and several other reasons that I don't have time to get into uh, with you today, uh, a first century Jewish wedding was a very, very big, once in a lifetime kind of deal. Uh, for all kinds of people near and far, and it really doesn't have a good comparison in our culture and society today. And so, to run out of wine at an event uh, and a celebration like this was way more than a buzz killer, to pardon the expression. It was way more than you know, a, a minor or even a major social embarrassment, because to run out of wine at a first century wedding meant that the wedding was likely to come to an early conclusion. In part because wine was a staple drink, uh, which, you know, kind of like water, was, you know, one of the two beverages that uh, people would have consumed. And generally speaking, wine was considered to be uh, safer than water to drink uh, after the water had been taken from the well to the cisterns, to jars, and then finally transported to uh, the places where, you know, they uh, would consume the water. And so to run out of wine meant that you were running out of the celebration, and it also was a sign uh, that the host of the wedding uh, wasn't simply a poor planner, but the host of the wedding was simply poor. But way more important than all of that is the fact that in the Old Testament, there were actually three things that stood out as signs that God was with you, that God's blessing was upon you. One was bread, one was oil, and the other was wine. And even though the, speech, uh, the scriptures speak against, uh, you know, abuse and drunkenness, nevertheless, wine was seen as a sign of God's presence and his blessing. And so, uh, for example, in predicting the restoration of Israel, the prophet Amos says that the, the hills would produce new wine. Isaiah even talks of heaven itself as a feast 
that would include the finest of wines. The Passover, one of the holiest days of the year, included wine in the cup of blessing. And so if you lost the wine at the wedding, it didn't just dampen the celebration. It meant that you lost the blessing of God. And that made it a very, very big deal and the kid in Sunday school, actually more right than she ever knew when she said, if you want to have a really good party, you better make sure Jesus is there. Well, Jesus was invited to the wedding, and he was there. And because he was there, those poor people were richly blessed. And they found out that in Jesus and his presence, the very best is yet to come. Well, in the fall of uh, 2016, uh, some of us here at St. Andrew were at Cana in Galilee, where we visited uh, a Roman Catholic church called, of all things, the Wedding Church, uh, which was built on top of a fourth century synagogue. And uh, we went in there and we read this passage from John chapter 2, and we prayed for uh, all married couples. Well, on the other side of the courtyard in front of that church uh, was a little souvenir shop uh, and that shop, among other things, sold, believe it or not, Cana wedding wine, uh, which was actually pretty expensive uh, when you priced it out. And, uh, and so our guide and I, you know, we're walking, kind of strolling, browsing through this uh, store, and, uh, and I ran into this Cana wedding wine, and I, I said to him, you know, hey, is this Cana wedding wine really that good? I mean, obviously, it's you know, very expensive, and, you know, he immediately shook his head and, and made a face, and he said, oh, no, it's terrible, it's headache wine, you know, don't buy it, you know, and, and I said to him, well, obviously, Jesus needs to come back, <laughs> because his is the best of all. Anyway, the best part of this whole story, at least for me, and uh, what creates sort of the aha moment in this passage comes in uh, another little detail that turns out to be a very big deal. And it has to do with the fact that in providing this new vintage, this much better later batch of wine, Jesus curiously does not use the empty wine jars that have been vacated by the wedding guests. Instead, he uses uh, six other jars that were in another place, and they were used for another reason, another purpose. And those jars held water for a required ritual known as uh, the purification. And the reason uh, for the purification is the people were considered to be unclean. I mean, they were considered to be unworthy of the wedding. And so these jars for the purification were, you know, reminders to them of their unworthiness and of their, and of their sin. They were uh, symbols and signs that, you know, they really, you know, weren't completely right with God. And it was into those jars, those symbols of an old law, those symbols of shame and of guilt and of unworthiness, those signs that you, you never really had it completely right with God, into which Jesus pours a new spirit. He pours grace. And that 
is a sign that a new way of getting right with God was coming. And it was coming through him, not through something you would have to do, but something that he would do so that in his words, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And so with that, the story of Cana comes to our church again today. And you and I are invited to be part of that story. And that's also a very big deal. Especially if by chance you happen to uh, identify with the host of the wedding uh, that are running out of provisions for, uh, for family, for friends, even for themselves, and they're anxious about it, as a lot of people have been in the course of the last month. Or maybe, you know, you're running low in some other way. Maybe you're feeling kind of spiritually empty or there's a personal loss. Or maybe you're disconnected from, you know, something that's just, you know, bigger than you are. Or maybe you uh, identify and are actually encouraged uh, by the example of Mary in the story, uh, who in spite of her uh, son's initial resistance does not hesitate to go to him and to state to him, cry out to him, tell him exactly what the promise is, what the problem is, and then back off and trust him for the outcome as she also encourages other people to do the very same thing, urging Jesus to embrace his destiny as Messiah so that other people would see his glory and come to believe in him. Or, you know, maybe you're like the servants in the story and you're just, you know, busy all the time, running around, trying to do what he tells you to do, until slowly but surely, you know, you just start to open your eyes and you see, wow, God really is working around me. He is working in my life, even through my life. And lo and behold, I'm, I'm part of a miracle here. Or maybe, you know, you're more like the chief steward who is pretty much clueless. And he really doesn't even understand what's happened. All he knows is that it did happen. And that because it happened, everything's better. Maybe you're like the bridegroom, who if he was from Cana, you know, was probably poor, certainly not rich. And yet when he left that reception, I mean, he probably felt like the richest guy in the world, ready to take his bride and journey off to a new life that looked so vastly different than anything he could possibly imagine. Or maybe you are like one of those anonymous wedding guests, and you come feeling unclean and unworthy. And like, you know, I'm just never going to get this thing completely right with God. And you need to just stand there and watch him transform symbols of shame into vessels of grace as you come here today for a foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, to drink in the wine of resurrection in response to the cries of your own heart, whatever they happen to be, and to give thanks to God that when something's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to him. So I don't know where you fit in. 
uh, to the story. But what I do know is that you're invited, and you're welcome, and you're included as part of that great story. And I also know that like the servants uh, at that wedding feast, you know, you and I are not the source of the blessings that come into this world. Because at the end of the day, guess what? Jesus isn't just our guest. He's also our host. He's the source of the joy, and we, his servants, get the privilege of doing what he tells us to do by taking his grace and extending it, taking his blessings and sharing them in this world so that more and more people will come to the wedding and know that God is there with them, that the spirit, the new spirit of Jesus has come and that everything else in this empty, broken world is an inferior label. Well, the late novelist uh, Willa Cather once wrote, where there is great love, there are always miracles. And they may not always look like the ones we read about in the Gospel of John, but they do happen. And they are there whenever a life is changed. It is transformed by the presence of Jesus. And it is to that life here on earth and someday in heaven's glory that you are invited and you are included and you are welcomed by our heavenly bridegroom, our guest, our host, our Lord. Amen.